RadioInfluence.com. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with Beans. With Beans. I'm here alone today. I'm going to be doing the show alone, and that's okay, because there is a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, Monday was a very interesting day, and we're going we're gonna to do some uh, personal reflection stuff first, and then we're going to get into national stuff. We're going to get into the Trump lawsuit. We're going to get into John Durham. We're going to get into... Uh, another appeal on a vaccine mandate for executive um, branch officials. We're going to um, talk about a whole bunch of stuff in, in regards to that, but I need you to hang in with me in the beginning of the show here while I talk about what happened. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I wrote an op-ed yesterday called, uh, I've been condemned by the SCGOP. Why does it matter to you? And this um, op-ed was picked up at Citizen Free Press and uh, Gateway Pundit republished it um, as a guest post because it's that important and it is. And, you know, we had very early on, we had Dan Schultz on the show and he said, go out, get involved, become a precinct committeeman in your local area. It's the way we take back the party and it's the way we become involved. And boy, did we. I mean, there has been an overwhelming sweep across the country of everyday people who are just sick and tired of the same old, same old, and, and and sitting there wondering to themselves, like, why aren't our Republican leaders or representatives, for better word, doing anything about this? Why, when we have power in Congress, um, are we just being pacified with, oh, it's too close to an election year, or, oh, we can't do this because of this, or whatever? And it seems that they're basically one and the same. They're a uniparty. And it's right before the midterms. Midterms come What? In, in, in early November, less than, less than eight weeks away, less than two months away. And um, as many of you know, I couldn't scream at you to go get involved locally and not do it myself. So I did. I did. I ran for my precinct executive committeeman position in different places. They're called different things. And then I ran because I was like, you know what? I'm not stopping here. Let me run for the state level position. And I did. And I won. And I was blessed to do so. And when I won, I made certain promises to people that elected me. And I kept every single damn promise, as did the rest of our executive board, by the way. Every one of them. So every two years, this is how it works for people who don't understand. And it's, it's, this is, you know, depending on what state you live in or what jurisdiction, everybody's got their own different rules and everybody has their own different terms and everybody, you know, has their own, their own stuff. However, in general, in general, this is what it is. Every two years, the GOP reorganizes. So there's a new reorganization, new people step up to run for precinct committee person at their voting precinct. And then that committee person is supposed to be in charge of or represent the will of the Republican voter in their district, in their precinct, in their little area. They're very, very small. Obviously, voting precincts are organized that way on purpose. So there are a number of them in a county. So they run for those positions. And also at the same time, there's an executive committee that runs the county GOP. There's usually a chair, a vice chair, a secretary, a treasurer, and the state executive committee person or, you know, whatever their title is in each state. The state executive committee person listens to the, quote, constituency, which are the precinct or executive committee people in their local county. And they take that up to the state party 
And then when the state party wants to craft rules or initiatives or do anything, or if the county parties pass resolutions, they bring them up to the state party and then they're the vote for their county. So let's say there are 46 counties in South Carolina. I am the vote for my county, which is Horry County. So I did that and I won. And we had a beautiful slate of people that won also. The chairman was amazing, just the most amazing person, um, became a really good friend of mine. The vice chair was great. He resigned a couple weeks ago. The Everybody was great. We were just all America First Patriots, so excited. I mean, I have a video from when I won. I was so excited to do to do what I what I what we all want to do what what the people that I mean we like tripled our convention attendance because everybody was so fired up and ready but there was also this very vocal minority of establishment esque people who were really really angry that we won this happened in a few different counties in South Carolina where the what they are calling the MAGA contingent won very influential positions in the GOP. To make a very long story short, this caused a lot of problems at the state level because they really, 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 really don't like us. So in one county in particular, um, Greenville County, when they had their initial reorganization and election for their county executive leadership, a bunch of people in that county said that there were nefarious things going on, that the election the election was done virtually, um, first of all, and they claimed that there was a lot of malfeasance and the vote wasn't fair. So the people that were elected chair, the people that were their, their uh, tenure was questioned by the rest of the voting body, appointed an, a panel of a bunch of different people to do an investigation into what happened. When the investigation came back, it did find that there were things that were done outside of the rules. There were things that they couldn't explain. The election of these people was called into question. Its integrity was called into question. In response to that, those people stepped down and there needed to be a new election to elect new people. Well, this angered the chair of the SCGOP quite a bit. And he went into the press and he called whoever was going to be elected in the county lepers. He said it will essentially be a leper colony for the next year and a half, quote. And then the author who wrote this piece that I'm quoting from said, wait, did McKissick just refer to the MAGA movement in South Carolina as a bunch of lepers? Why, yes, yes, he did. And he also said, McKissick, that the state party was going to support rival GOP organizations created by, quote, sane Republicans. So he basically said, regardless of who wins this new election, they're all crazy, crazy people and lepers. That's what the state GOP chair is saying about grassroots activism on the GOP side in his state. And they did this. They ran, they took private clubs that they appointed, not duly elected by the citizens, the GOP, you know, the the, the Republicans in the district or in the, the county. These, these clubs weren't elected by anybody at all. They were completely outside the rules, stood these clubs up and ran official GOP business through the club instead of through the actual county party. It is absolutely abhorrent and unheard of. For this, we censured him. The Horry County Republican Party said, this is so far out of bounds. This is so ridiculous. Something needs to be said about it because no one's doing anything about it. And we voted, our executive committee voted yes to censure Drew McKissick. To vote, you need a quorum. So that's the majority. The majority of our 
precinct executive committee people agreed and they they censured him. That was the first of many things. So then they basically took the GOP as it stands in Horry County and ignored it for two years. They ran little events without us that were very poorly attended because we're the grassroots and we have all the people. And so when I went in, I was excited because I thought, sadly mistaken, that I could be a bridge and help kind of mend this and like help get everybody working together. And I, you know, I, I reached out to the state committee and I, I tried to forge relationships with them. And, and we were just basically ignored at every single turn. We were completely ignored. And so fine. So I have to go to this committee meeting every quarter and sit there and watch the most hideous behavior. I mean, for these people that they, you know, each executive, there's only a few counties in the state that aren't establishment-esque or good old boy for what you want to say. So they would look at us like we were the dirty unwashed and, and like the behavior was worse than like high school mean girls. Long story short, very long story short, in the middle of the summer, the GOP decided they were going to call a convention outside of norms, never happens. Um, the convention's supposed to be after reorganization, whatever. They call this convention, all the delegates that were voted in um, during the last reorg are notified that they're to come to Columbia, South Carolina for this convention. I saw it. I'm like, you know what? I, okay, I'm not even going to be here during it. I'm going to be on vacation. So I never even said a word about it, but it bothered a lot of people because what they ended up doing, I, I guess, like right before the convention, they released what their rule changes they wanted to vote on were. And one of the rule changes says this, the state executive committee alone may declare, quote, unorganized any entity or level of organization created under these rules for repeated failure to abide by these rules, which are abstract. And, you know, it's abstract. Like they're 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 such declarations shall require a three fourths vote of the entire membership of the state executive committee, which shall prompt the organization of the affected entity as provided for in these rules. So. Basically, they said we need three quarters of our counties to say that a party in a county isn't doing what we want, and then we can just dissolve it and replace it at will. And the rule above that was no individual who holds any party office or delegate or or alternate position may be a party to any legal action against the party at any level or against any party officers in their official capacities. Doing so shall result in an immediate vacancy of said office or delegate or alternate position. So not only did they pass the rule saying they can dissolve, but they passed a rule saying that if you think these rules are bad and you try to sue over them, which is the ultimate remedy, then you're out. Seems fair to me. Long, 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 long story short, after that happened, last my chair, who was at the convention, made a motion from the floor. I'm getting this third hand or second hand from him. He made a motion from the floor to question or challenge the way the committee was or the way the convention was called, because there were a lot of questions about it from a lot of different people. And so he made a motion to kind of examine that and to talk about it. And because he made that motion on Saturday at the executive committee meeting, when we should be talking about the fact that the country is burning down all around us, that Joe Biden is standing in front of a red background with with the military on both sides of him talking about how basically everybody in the Republican Party is a domestic extremist. Instead of focusing on, you know, the wide open border, the things that we talk about on the show all the time, they decided they were going to take their time to pass a resolution condemning me by name, even though I had nothing to do with any of this, and Roger and a bunch of other people in other counties for questioning the convention. Okay. That was pretty much it for me. 
between all of the nonsense locally, um, they have like little influence campaigns that go on locally where, you know, people will scheme and they will get try and, you know, get people to turn on you and they will start rumors and they will they will say, well, these people are bad because it's really really bad and they will basically weaponize the rules they write to target you while not following the rules themselves which sounds exactly like exactly like the democrats because guess what it is south carolina i guess they feel is so reliably red that they don't have to worry about any of this and like during committee meetings can talk about how their most important concern is how many Facebook likes they have. But this has been a hell that I've been living through for two years. And, you know, honestly, we did a lot of great things at the local level. We, we tackled voter integrity. We went to, um, we went to county council. We had resolutions. We forced them to look into things. We have done a lot here locally. We've raised a bunch of money. I mean, we have really busted our butts over the past year and a half to do the right thing for our constituency, who are the Republicans in Horry County, South Carolina. And that is no good. That is frowned upon. For years before we got here, the party did nothing. They did nothing. That's why they didn't like us. They didn't like us. They hated us. I mean, hated us. They really didn't like us at all. But as I've read to you, the rules make it so that I'm not allowed to have a disagreement with anything. Otherwise, I'm gone anyway. And when the whole committee, outside of the counties that were implicated, voted to condemn a family member for something so ridiculous as to raise an objection on behalf of their constituency, God, God forbid you step out of line, people then what recourse do we have? We have no recourse. And they were going to dissolve us, I assume, at some point. But if we want any accountability, we're not going to be able to do it under that structure. So if you are in a local GOP that is having issues like this, if you are in a local party and you have faced issues like this in your local area, I am asking you at this point to go to uncoverdc.com slash contact and write in to me with detailed information about what's going on. If you have documentation to prove what you're talking about, tell me and we'll have an email sent back so you can upload or respond with that documentation. I am collating these stories from all over the country because the outcry from people after they read this op-ed had been nothing short of stunning. Um, I explain everything in more detail in here. It is very fiery for lack of a better word but it explains and you know if you've been involved in local politics you understand how it is um i have been absolutely stunned to see some of the social media behavior from some people i've never seen anything like this before in my life it's like it's like mean girls but grown adults and grandmas and grandpas it is disgusting like this it's just with everything going on and all of the stuff that we have to deal with and the country basically burning down around us, we are, um, we are in an environment where the status quo, the uniparty, the establishment is just so scared that we all came in to try and have them held accountable or hold some accountability for somebody that they have declared war and they are using the tactics of the uniparty and the left to get rid of people that they don't like. And the problem is, is that they intimidate and they scare 
other people that are, you know, that are involved and whatever and get them to shut up so that only the loudmouths and the people with guts are standing and there are few. So I really implore everybody out there to grow a set and start really standing up for what's right because the shirking away and the not wanting to be, you know, in the middle of it and the, you know, um, well, you know, this is too much and blah, blah, blah. It's not going to do it. You know, if you don't have support and, you know, if people are too afraid to support what is actually right and good and they shirk away because it's not worth the hassle to them to do it or they're too scared or whatever, that's how we got here in the first place. It's never going to change that way. People really need to stop being scared. They real it's the time for being scared of what someone's going to think or what someone's going to say or, you know, what what newest um, influence campaign is being prompted upon you. The time for that is done. The time for it's done. If we keep doing that, if you keep doing that, we're finished because then there's four people, five people, six people left standing to battle an entrenched establishment that is hell bent on their destruction and they're doing it alone. And that's not okay. It's not. So that's that for today. Please read the op-ed. It's in the description box in the show notes. And please, if you've done this and gotten involved and stood up to do this, send an email to uncoverddc.com slash contact today. Do it. Send an email. Explain what your situation is, where you are, what uh, county. This I got the emails that I got yesterday. I had I had I can't even tell you how many. I was reading them all day long from people all over the country that were like, holy crap, this is exactly what's happening to me. And that means it's coming from somewhere much higher, which matters, which matters. So with all that being said, I want to talk about um, what will end up being like a mix between Durham and Trump because they kind of intertwine. And I've been kind of, you know, investigating this stuff a little bit more because there's been a lot more filings in the Trump versus United States case which is the case where Trump filed for a special master. The DOJ said, "What we're, we're appealing this. And also, Judge, we're asking for an emergency stay to stop you from um, excluding, well, to cause you, to force you to exclude 100 classified documents that we feel are vital to national security or could be so that the special master doesn't have um, the ability to segregate those. And this whole entire time we've been saying like, well, where's the privilege claims? Where are the privilege claims? Like where are Donald Trump's privilege claims? Like, and, and also declassification claims. So didn't he, like we've been saying he declassified all this stuff. He declassified all this stuff, but we haven't seen the, the lawyers argue any of that anywhere. It's, it's never, it's not really been brought up until yesterday until yesterday. So of course, Trump's attorneys on this case in Florida are really, really good. I'm just going to say that he replaced his legal team or not replaced. I want to say he brought on new attorneys and they are absolutely masterful. Okay. So that's number one. Rest assured that that's the case in Florida, at least. Um, We learned a lot yesterday. Uh, They unsealed more of the affidavit and also um, they finally when the Trump team filed their opposition to the government's stay request, they finally begin to seriously discuss the declassification defense, which holds a tremendous amount of weight in the case. Um, they start talking about 
why the fact that he declassified all this stuff that the government says is classified is important. And everybody's been arguing back and forth about what this stuff really is. And there has been a consensus that the stuff that he's talking about are the Spygate documents, the declassified Spygate documents that he declassified as he was leaving office, that Cash Patel talked about releasing, um, you know, since he was appointed custodian of records, right? So... If that's the case, just quickly, then John Durham doesn't have those. I'll just let that sink in for a second. If that's the case, then John Durham doesn't have them and isn't using them. What does that mean? What does it mean? Hmm. If it's not those documents, that's a different story. But I haven't seen Durham step forward and say, oh, wait, guys, these are being involved. These documents are involved in another criminal investigation. You got to wait on this. That hasn't happened. So either... The documents in question are not the Spygate documents that he declassified before leaving office, in which case we're left wondering what they are, or they are, and John Durham isn't using them. So there's that. Um, But when they unredacted more of the search warrant affidavit, and the reason that they, the government moved into the search warrant case and said we can unredact more of this is because Trump's team, when they filed talked about a number of the things in the affidavit. Um, And so the government said, well, we can unseal more now because it's already been talked about. And usually it's to prevent, you know, grand jury tampering or to interfere with the grand jury. And since, you know, you guys have already um, talked about this, it's fine for us to release it. There are more juries sitting in D.C. The government told us yesterday. So there is in, you know, they're going after Trump the pack they're going after everything and they do have a criminal grand jury sitting in dc they reference it throughout um, the filing that they write to unseal this one and in the new um in the new information that came out they make it a point in the search warrant affidavit to say that when producing the documents neither former president's counsel nor individual to asserted that former president had declassified the documents. So they already were aware that there was a a classification issue with these things. And because when they produced the, the additional documents that the FBI came to get, because when the Trump team produced them and in the manner in which they were produced, being in a red weld envelope wrapped in tape, the government is assuming that because they didn't say these were unclassified or declassified when he left office or as he was leaving because of that the government saying well he never told us they were they were unclassified and the way he gave them to us leads us to believe they are still classified so there's that then we got more there was an exhibit attached from president trump's lawyer to jay bratt who is the chief counterintelligence and export control section the chief of the counterintelligence and export control section of the NSD or the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. And he writes and he says he's writing on behalf of Trump in regarding the presidential records investigation. This letter is dated May 25th, 2022. He says this. I'm just going to read some of it because it's important. Public trust in the... That was a pop. Public trust in the government is low. At such times, adherence to the rules and longstanding policies is essential. President Donald J. Trump is a leader of the Republican Party. 
The DOJ, as part of the executive branch, is under the control of a president from the opposite party. It is critical, given that dynamic, that every effort is made to ensure that the actions by DOJ may touch upon the former president or his close associates do not involve politics. There have been public reports about an investigation by DOJ into presidential records purportedly marked as classified among materials that were once in the White House and unknowingly included among the boxes brought to Mar-a-Lago by the movers. Very clear. Very clear. It is important to emphasize that when a request was made for the documents by NARA, President Trump readily and voluntarily agreed to their transfer to NARA. The communications regarding the transfer to NARA were friendly, open, and straightforward. President Trump voluntarily ordered that the boxes be provided to NARA. No legal objection was asserted about the transfer. No concerns were raised about the contents of the boxes. It was a voluntary and open process. Now, remember, this is an exhibit provided by the government in the case. it's It's a little bit longer, but it's worth it. Unfortunately, this is again May. Unfortunately, the good faith demonstrated by President Trump wasn't matched once the boxes arrived at NARA. Leaks followed, and once DOJ got involved, the leaks continued. Leaks about any investigation are concerning. Leaks about an investigation that involved the residence of a former president who is still active on the national political scene are particularly troubling. It is important to note a few bedrock principles. Number one, a president has absolute authority to declassify documents, and they go through the statutory reasoning behind that. Presidential actions involving classified documents are not subject to criminal sanction. Any attempt to impose criminal liability on a president or former president that involves his actions with respect to documents marked classified would implicate grave constitutional separation of power issues. Beyond that, the primary criminal statute that governs the unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material does not apply to the president. And then they put the statute. An element to this offense, which the government must prove behind a reasonable doubt, is that the accused is a, quote, officer, employee, contractor, or consultant of the United States. The president is none of these, i.e., they're trying to use the Espionage Act against a former president, and it's not going to fly. Three, DOJ must be insulated from political influence. According to the Inspector General of the DOJ, one of the top challenges facing the department is the public perception that DOJ is influenced by politics. The report found that the one important strategy that can build public trust in the DOJ is to ensure adherence to policies and procedures designed to protect the DOJ from accusations of political influence or partial application of the law. We all know that it is, it, 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 it's just a moot point at this, I, I don't even have to add to that. Number four, DOJ must be candid with judges and present exculpatory evidence. Long-standing DOJ policy requires that DOJ attorneys be candid in representations made to judges. Pursuant to those policies, we request that the DOJ provide this letter to any judicial officer who's asked to rule on any motion pertaining to this investigation or on any application made in connection with any investigative request concerning this investigation. And then they go into more about the policy. The official policy of DOJ further requires that prosecutors present exculpatory evidence to a grand jury. So they knew. Pursuant to that policy, we request the DOJ provide this letter to any grand jury considering evidence in connection with this matter or any grand jury asked to issue a subpoena for testimony or documents in connection with this matter. Evan Corcoran. I think it's pretty clear that 
they, meaning the Trump team, is under the very strong assumption or belief, which is true, that everything that was taken from Mar-a-Lago that was marked classified was actually already declassified by the president before he left office. And I would, I would really, I'm going to put it in the show notes, go in and read some of the briefs that have been written back and forth. They're really something to behold. I mean, they really are. Like the government is basically saying we're tyrants, we're kings sitting on an iron throne and we get everything we want and they have no rights. And it's absurd. And of course, the judge, there was an arrest made um, just yesterday or the day before of somebody who was threatening to kill the judge who ruled on the special master. I, you know, it's not like they're saying that the case should be thrown out or anything like that. They're just saying there needs to be a a third party, an unbiased third party. By the way, they've agreed on somebody, um, former FISA court judge that apparently had signed off on one of the Carter Page FISA warrants. But that's actually not concerning to me, believe it or not, because the FISA court didn't know. And maybe this gentleman may understand more now about what corruption is going on because the Trump team recommended him as well. So there's that. Now, moving on, moving on. We're going to move on to um, Durham. So there was a filing yesterday in the Durham case that Danchenko, Igor Danchenko, the primary subsource for the Steele dossier, who fabricated all manner of things, obviously, was a confidential human source for the FBI from March of 2017 through October of 2020. In March of 2017, the FBI signed the defendant up as a paid confidential human source of the FBI. The FBI terminated its source relationship with the defendant in October of 2020. Technofog says that the reason why he was a confidential human source was to allow the FBI to work directly with Denchenko in support of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation into President Trump. And it protected them and the special counsel from revealing their sources and method methods. So in other words, because he was a CHS, he couldn't be unmasked, quote, So because of that, it allowed them to kind of keep him behind the scenes and not be exposed to scrutiny. Um, Now, Durham is revealing that he was a confidential human source through October of 2020. And the problem with this for me, all of it is, it just fits right nicely into the mold that I laid out a few weeks ago. John Durham, for for everything that I can see, and there are people who disagree with me, you know, passionately, for lack of a better word, passionately disagree with me on this. And that's okay. We don't really know who's right at this point for factual basis, but this is my opinion. Durham is just like, by prosecuting these people, he's making them expose the FBI so he doesn't have to do it. There is no indictment for James Comey. There is no indictment for Andrew McCabe. There is no indictment for Peter Strzok or Lisa Page. There is no indictment for Jim uh, Baker, There is no indictment for Glenn Simpson. There is no indictment for Christopher Steele. There is no indictment for Hillary Clinton. There is no indictment for Mark Elias. There is no indictment, blah, blah, blah. And by indicting Danchenko, knowing that he was a confidential human source until 2020, his defense is going to be, this is what the FBI did, and this is how they did it, and this is why I'm innocent. 
And he's going to expose the FBI malfeasance so that it's out there on the record. Durham may or may not win this one. I don't know. This is the last thing. I do not see another indictment after this. I just don't see it. I do, they could have done it a million times from Sunday so far. I hope I'm wrong. But this coupled with the whole declassification argument that everybody's making about the documents at Mar-a-Lago lead me to believe that whatever those documents are, they're not in John Durham's possession. So he can't be prosecuting something based off of them. They're not being used in an ongoing criminal investigation. So they can't be a part of the story. And that just really seems to be what the, what the whole thing is. There's a really well-done timeline in here. Um, I'm going to put this uh, Technofog substack in the description or show notes below. He goes through all the details of it, which I contend at this point may not even really matter, um, except that Dolan is going to come in and uh, Sergey Milian, who was defamed and destroyed over something that was completely false. Um, I don't know if you guys remember Sergey Milian. They, they accused him of, of calling. They trashed him in the press. He, you know, Danchenko had said it was him who left this 15 minute long, had this 15 minute long call. It ended up not being him. He doesn't have anywhere to go to get his reputation back. So just like many people like Svetlana Lakova and others, he is stuck in this um, Carter Page, whose case was just dismissed, by the way, a couple weeks ago. It, it just it's I don't I just don't see I don't see it. Sorry. I wish I could. I wish I could say something else. It just. I don't see it. I really think that Durham's, um, I really think that Durham's whole point, whole reason was to be able to get the story out there without holding any of the mayor player, major players accountable. And he's doing it in a masterful way without even getting his own hands dirty. He's indicting people that are peripheral and then getting them to expose all the malfeasance going on inside through the sheer, their sheer defense. So we'll keep an eye. Trial starts next year, next year, next month. <laughs> Trial starts next month and we'll keep an eye on it for sure. I think um, it's going to be a super interesting, super interesting trial. That's for sure. Um, another thing that was brought to my attention um, is, oh, before I get to that, before I get to that, <laughs> yesterday there was a hearing. Um, Wendy did a fantastic column on it. Um, the Twitter, the, the Twitter whistleblower. The Twitter whistleblower that came forward and talked about the security issues at Twitter had testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. Um, and Wendy wrote a great piece for Uncover DC uh, discussing that. Um, the whistleblower warned of user and uh, national security breaches and let us know that the FBI had told them that they had an embedded Chinese spy, <laughs> which is true, I think, of our Senate and our Congress as well. <laughs> Or, or you know, just people sleeping with them or using them as drivers for 20-something years or 30 years, you know, just those easy little things that we happen to gloss over. Um, it, his name is Peter Zatko. He's a former hacker. He's a really kind of up there guy. Um, he came forward because of grave concerns over antiquated security standards. Twitter had brought him in to kind of clean things up. And the one of the, it seems that one of the, breaches or loopholes was allowing um they were raising they were making a lot of money and instead of fixing it they said we have to try and get people to be okay with this instead um the, there are 4000 twitter engineers that have access to every single twitter user's data 
and thousands of users that had access to the advertisers, uh, advertisers information, including their bank accounts and routing numbers. And people can go in and change those things. A user on Twitter that was harassing some members of the executive team and some members of the board. Uh, and as an example, uh, this person, the CTO, came to me and said, Mudge, um, you know, is this a real viable threat? Do I need to be worried? You know, who is this person? And it took me maybe uh, 30 minutes to reach out to an employee and say, what do we know about this person? And then it only took that person maybe 10 minutes to get back to me and said, okay, here's who they are. This is the address where they live. This is where they are physically at this moment. They're on their phone. We know their phone number. We also know all of the other accounts that they've tried to set up on the system and hide. And we know who they are on the other social media platforms as well. So unbeknownst to a Twitter account user, uh, there is access to information far beyond what you think you've disclosed uh, that can be found. Hmm. Now, you have to kind of know that that's happening if you're on a social media platform, any social media platform, guys. But that's how they find the people that do random threats that they actually want to go after. That's how they find them. Very easy. Very easy. It's really crazy what we're giving these people access to using our phones. Really, really crazy. Read this piece. It's in the show notes. But um, Lindsey Graham at this at this my senator here in South Carolina. <laughs> you can't you can't make it up. Rewind to the beginning of the show. Um, he he said he's working um, he's working with Elizabeth Warren guys. He's working with Elizabeth Warren because he thinks that more licensing requirements for the people running social media platforms and more government control over social media platforms is really what's going to help it. It's going to stop everything. If the government has more control, if there's more regulation, then all will be well because nobody will ever abuse that. And then yesterday also, Lindsey Graham came forward with a, uh, with a great idea that'll never ever pass in a million trillion years for an abortion bill. Here he is. Here's what I think. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. And what would that mean if we adopted that position? The next chart. Where are the chart people? If we adopted my bill, our bill, we would be in the mainstream of most everybody else in the world. Now, understand, the whole Supreme Court debacle that just happened was a state's rights issue. They took the power from the federal government and they moved it back to the states. And now Lindsey Graham traipses in wanting to undo what they just did, basically is to say the states decide on an individual basis what goes on with abortion. And here's McConnell. Lindsey Graham has this 15-week abortion ban. If you take up, take the Senate, will you put this on the floor of the Senate for a vote, or will you commit to leaving this issue entirely to the states? Well, with regard to his bill, you'll have to ask him about it. In terms of scheduling, I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. Uh, (laughs) Oh, goodness. I swear. (laughs) And then yesterday, guys, Biden 
had a White House garden party to celebrate the Inflation Reduction Act as the stock market was tanking. Um, here, let's, let's listen. Think about what you'd think about at the time. Think about how you'd feel. Um. The insurance and didn't have the money. It's wrong. It's not who we are, and we're going to... We're going to fix it. Here. Okay, you're listening there to President Biden at the White House. He's celebrating the passage... I've got some internet issues. ...reduction act. He says that he's been fighting Big Pharma for decades. Um, But there is this unfortunate split screen right now with the Dow taking a total beating down more than 1,200 points. And so it feels like uh, it's hard to be celebratory for some people in the crowd. Yeah. Okay, you're listening. Yeah, it is hard to be celebratory. Here is (laughs) James Taylor with a performance of Fire and Rain. I have seen fire in the sea. I just, there's a long pause because I, 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 Nancy Pelosi actually had to beg here. Mr. President, thank you for unifying and inspiring a vision. Sorry about the. Fair, fair safer future for all, for our children. Your extraordinary leadership has made this glorious day possible. I, that's an applause line. (laughs) (laughs) You have to clap for us, seals. Clap for us, sheep. (laughs) Come on. She's always talking about children. For our children, for our children. For our children. Remember, I did a clip on the show like months ago where I was during the abortion talk, I believe, for our children. We have to make it safer for our children. And and Joe Biden talking about how he beat big pharma. Are you, you kidding me? Do we really need, need to even get into Joe Biden's partnership with big pharma? <laughs> it's like he thinks you're completely stupid. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> He's oh, they're still trying to they're still trying to cram the vaccine mandate down our throats. They're still trying to do that. And they want us to talk about how Biden beat big pharma. And then, guys, we have a lot of issues. We have Mike, um, Mike Lindell cornered at a Hardee's with the FBI having a warrant for his phone, taking his phone away from him. We have um, Bernie Carrick. I have a clip of this with Emerald Robinson right now that we're going to listen to here. Tell us what happened next and how you were eventually served. Uh, I was out of town, um, got a call from the FBI. They said they were in my driveway, uh, actually, um, just spoken to my family. Uh, My daughter was a wreck. Um, And I told them, I said, listen, I'll, uh," I said, what are you looking for? He said he wanted to speak to me about my prior position with the legal team. Um, I told them I'd be back up in uh, up north, and I talked to him when I got there. Uh, I was back the next morning, uh, called him. He, they showed up at my house. Two agents came inside. One waited outside, uh, two different vehicles. And, um, you know, he said he wanted to talk to me about my, uh, my time with the election campaign, uh, with the election uh, fraud investigation. And uh, and I told him, I said, listen, I'm uh, I have a great admiration for you guys for what you do. The line agents of the FBI, I said, but I have no trust, faith or confidence in your leadership. Um, so I'm not going to be talking to you at all. 
Um, if you want to talk to my attorney, you can do that. Have your prosecutors talk to my attorney, um, at which time he handed me a subpoena. Uh, the thing I thought was strange about this was that I, um, they know I have counsel. They know that, uh, but they sent these agents anyway, uh, which is pretty disturbing. Um, uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, when I looked at the subpoena, there's over 120 people mentioned that, in that subpoena. I don't know 90% of them. I've never heard of many of the people in that subpoena, um, which was kind of odd. But the thing that stood out more than anything else is that every single one of Donald Trump's lawyers that was on the legal team investigating voter fraud and election fraud, they're named in that subpoena. That's insane. That's crazy. It's rogue and it's everywhere and there's going to be more. And it is terrifying. It really is terrifying. And they're going to, I have to assume, try and cram this stuff through before the midterms or right after the midterms. I, I don't know. But something has to give here. This is, this is you know, for all of the, uh, you know, um, pacification that happened with all of the criminal activity we know occurred for the past however many years under previous administrations, for them to be doing this, we've, we've really got a big, big problem on our hands. A very big problem on our hands, guys. I think we have um, here, we have a clip for Mike as well here. Anyway, then he goes, um, well, I got, I got some bad news. And I go, okay, here it comes, right? He goes, uh, we're taking your cell phone. We have a warrant for your cell phone. I go, no, I said my whole company... I run five companies off that. I don't have a computer. My hearing aids run off this. Everything runs off my phone. I said, and then I said, if I don't give it to you, will you arrest me then? And, they, and I, I was just, you know, I'm going, are you kidding me? You're not getting my phone. And uh, he, he, so he shows me this arrest warrant. We're going to put it up here in a thing or not. This phone. He keeps on seeing, saying arrest warrant because that's what they call it. I have a. Uh... They call when they take a property an arrest. They call that an arrest. So he's he's just conflating terms. Understand? He's not like actually. There isn't actually an arrest warrant for him. He's just conflating terms. Phone, uh, arrest phone to arrest my phone. A warrant, a warrant for your phone. A subpoena yeah, yeah, for your yeah, phone. A warrant for your phone. Yeah, yeah. So he gives me this, and we'll put it up on the screen in a minute. And I'm going. So then I go. Well, can I call a lawyer? So I called. Uh, I actually called a lawyer. He gets on the phone and uh, and I said, hey, I, I'm not giving him my phone. And he's going, no, you should give him the phone. He, they, he goes, sir, we, he goes, sir, we have a we have a warrant and arrest or I mean, for our, a warrant for his a phone. And I go, I'm thinking, well, they'll arrest me if I won't give the phone. But no, if you read this, they have, they would have they would have done everything they could because they could, you know, the phone was right there. Believe me, they would have got the phone. Okay, you know, um, with physical force, they would have got the phone. I mean, if that, if it's all, you know, I had to give up the phone, right? And uh, I go, but everything I run, I bought this phone. I said, can we, I said, uh, this is my life. This is the businesses rely on this. Everything I have relies on it. I can't even imagine you can just take somebody's phone. Poor Mike Lindell. <laughs> Poor Mike. Mm, goodness. 
All right, guys, that's it for today. You have been listening to the Dark Delight Podcast with Beans. You can hear me every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2.30 Eastern Time on TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com. We will be back on Friday. I'm Jerry Petuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>